Hello, and welcome to the Architectette podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Brady. Architectette is a podcast that illuminates the lesser heard stories of women plus in architecture and related fields. On today's podcast, we welcome guest and my former coworker, Eva Baker. Eva is an architect who specializes in laboratory planning. She is currently a senior associate and director of the Philadelphia office of Hera Laboratory Planners. On today's episode, we talk about Eva's pairing of a bachelor degree in chemistry with a master's degree in architecture so that she could combine two of her passions, whether she followed the advice of her mentors to focus on general architecture before diving into laboratory expertise. I ask Eva what are the most important components to consider when designing a lab, which includes structural modules, safety, flexibility, MEP, and equipment. And then we also talk about the emerging trends in laboratory design, like automation. We discuss her long path to working at Hera and how a consultancy functions differently than an architecture firm. We talk about her favorite types of projects, skills she looks for when hiring, and how long it takes, spoiler, it's two years, to become a lab specialist. Eva also shares about the challenges she faced when she returned from maternity leave and had to balance office work and pumping, late nights, working parent hours, the constraints of childcare, and the societal and self-imposed stress of motherhood and career progression. We end by talking about the importance of sharing responsibilities at home so that she and her partner can pursue meaningful careers as well as a successful family life. As a reminder, all links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review so that more people can discover the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Eva, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me today. This is a real special treat and honor, and it's great to see you again. Yes. So for our listeners, Eva and I worked together at Jacobs back in, I think, 2013 to 2015. I was there. And then Eva, you had a little bit more time before and after that. And I thought you would be a great guest to highlight on the podcast because you have such a unique journey to becoming an architect. I was wondering if you can elaborate on who you were as a child and did you think you would be here today and what path did you take to get here? My path was not straightforward by any means. I knew when I was a kid, I liked architecture. So if you bumped into any of my sixth grade friends, they'd probably say, oh, Eva always talked about becoming an architect. But I really also loved and was good at math and science. And so as I got into high school, I did take a drafting course and I did take a digital drawing course, but that maxed out the architectural related offerings at my high school. And I also got sucked in and fell in love with their neuroscience and some of the other higher science courses that were just fascinating. So when it came time to apply for colleges. I didn't have the art background that I would have needed to put a portfolio together and apply for architectural schools. So I did my research. I found schools that had really strong architecture programs, but also had really strong uh, liberal arts programs, and I applied undecided. So that took me to Syracuse University, which was really a great fit for my indecisiveness. And I was Started off my first day as a undecided major, but with a declared minor in architecture. So I got to take some more architecture classes, kind of get my feet wet, try it out. And I had some really great professors that took me under their wing and, you know, eventually did some independent studies with them. And they really helped support me develop that portfolio. But while I was at Syracuse, I also had some really strong chemistry professors that also took me under their wing and kind of fell into and really excelled at the coursework for chemistry. Uh, And then I also partnered with a professor and did research in the labs. 
as much as I liked the research, I don't think I was really that great at it. You know, I'm one of those kind of cooks who follows a recipe, but somehow always seems to miss a step. Or <laughs> if I'm trying to grow crystals, the crystals never really grew. It, it's kind of an art form as much it is, as it is a science. And I found it pretty isolating. I worked at my own chemical fume hood by myself. My reactions took five days to run. So I would start Monday morning and I would check in every day between classes and keep it going and hope that I could get it finished by Friday and that it didn't spill into Saturday. And so when it came time, to figure out what to do after college, I took the leap of faith and applied to architecture grad school, and I've never looked back. And you went to Penn for grad school? That's correct. Coming in as a non-major, they had a summer session start. So I started with about 15 other people who were kind of doing a major change or a career change, depending on their experience and background. And so that, in my opinion, it was just them trying to make sure we had enough grit to make it through the course. You know, they they certainly gave us a lot of demanding assignments that caused some of my first all-nighters, first of many all-nighters. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I grinned and bared it and, and made it through and survived. For me, coming with a chemistry and science background, I approached design much more from a technical side rather than from the art and artistic side. I, I think I really started to excel once I hit the workplace and was able to merge both that chemistry interest and the architecture interest. Because that's still through grad school, I wasn't really sure how I was going to make those two paths mm -hmm. converge. So it wasn't until I got into the workplace that I think things really started to gel for me. Yeah, because in grad school, at least probably in architecture school, the projects that you're working on aren't typically laboratory thesis or studio projects. It's always like a, a library or a cultural center. So when you interned, I know you interned at Bird Hill, you worked at RMJM and then also Kling Stubbins and then Jacobs where we met. Did you start out working on laboratory projects or was it maybe residential or commercial and then fate led you to lab projects? I don't quite remember how it came about, but I knew pretty quickly that there were firms in the city that had labs. And I'm pretty sure that Richard Farley, who is my structural professor, Richard worked at Jacobs, but taught structures at Penn. I know I reviewed and made a very long list, probably in Excel, <laughs> of all the firms in the city and trying to figure out how to sort through them all. And I, I know I went to him with this crazy long list and he put some check marks next to some of the ones he, he recommended starting with. So with his guidance, I think I learned that some firms just might be more open and, and amenable to a really green architectural summer intern mm -hmm. and other firms may have more labs. But that first summer, I was competing against all of the other students at Penn. Many of them had architecture undergraduate degrees. And so I felt like even just getting an interview was a bit of a struggle. And so I just took whatever I, quite frankly, felt like I could get. And so Burt Hill was nice enough to bring me on board. And for that summer, I worked on a condo project for a developer uh, in Wilmington, Delaware called Justice and Landing. They were redeveloping the waterfront. So very much mixed use, you know, work, live, play type of environment. Mm -hmm. And so I was in MicroStation doing a lot of drawing of the elevations. So as you drive down 95 through Wilmington, the, the window elevation that you see is all of my hard work from that summer. <laughs> That's awesome. It's very cool to be able to drive past something and, and see it all the time, be reminded of that time. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you use MicroStation for that too. <laughs> yes. 
slightly predates Revit. But, you know, once I got a couple summer internships under my belt and graduated, I was very intentional to find my first full-time job after graduation at a firm that offered and, and specialized in either higher ed and or science and technology, life sciences. They all kind of brand themselves a little differently. So I joined RMJM Hillier right after, I think my Monday was the first day right after RMJM acquired Hillier. I was just really fortunate to be paired with this wonderful woman named Laura Carlson, who was their main laboratory planner. And they had enough lab projects that I almost exclusively was able to work on labs. And one of the things I learned very quickly is most architects seem to be drawn towards general architecture. There's not many of us that are excited about labs. I mean, some people are happy to work on it for a project, but don't seem to want to continue exclusively in laboratory design. And so the fact that I would speak up, I was usually the first person they would staff on these different lab projects. So do you think that having that specialty has helped your career? Because you were one of very few people who wanted to specialize in that realm. And so there's, I would imagine there were a lot of opportunities that presented themselves because of that specialty. I think so. I did feel like I was in very high demand as long as the firms I was at were able to bring in enough laboratory projects. I was more than happy to work on it, at least from where I was sitting. It always felt like staffing was the bigger issue. And then I was diversified enough that if there wasn't a lab project, I could help out on other projects like lead submittal tracking for a library at Goucher College. And so there's been some other non-lab projects sprinkled in there. But I, I do think just having a solid foundation as an architect is really important. A lot of people early in my career were telling me, you know, that's great that you love labs, but don't dive in 100% quite yet. You still need to just get general background and knowledge on architecture to be a stronger lab architect. And so for someone thinking, oh, I, I really do like labs. I think this could be a specialty that I develop. What would you say to them in terms of what goes into planning a lab? What are important components to consider? I mean, I have a lot to say on this. Okay. <laughs> we have time. We have time. <laughs> so designing labs and lab planning really is a specialty skill set. And at my current job and firm, we do have occasionally really general purpose architects that are interested in taking that dive. And it, it takes them maybe, certainly takes them a couple projects and it takes about two years before they seem to have enough experience that they can start to feel like they can work a little bit more independently and on their own and, and start to drive the design themselves. I mean, they still certainly check in with teammates, but there is a kind of a steep learning curve. Labs, just even right off the bat, we design based around what's called a lab module, which is 11 feet by 11 foot planning grid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it even dictates the structural spacing on the building. So where an office building is usually a 20 foot structural grid, uh, laboratory buildings are going to be a 22 foot structural grid because we're working on that 11 foot planning module. So safety in the lab is of utmost importance. Lab flexibility is also pretty important because science is just changing so quickly and, and evolving. And they might have a grant doing this one type of research today, but if they discover something or something doesn't pan out, it can start to shift. So the lab users need to have the ability, both lab users and the facilities, 
need to have the ability to modify and change the lab to just support the ever-changing needs. And we want to enable the scientists to give them innovative spaces where they can have these kind of aha moments or explore everything that they set their minds out to. So we don't want the architecture and the, the built environment to hold them back in any ways. We want to enhance what they're doing. But then there's also just a lot of technical things. A lot of lab spaces are very equipment driven or equipment heavy. So there is, and this is one of the things I love about lab design is there's the just big picture, high level spatial planning, but then it also takes someone who's really detail oriented to dive into the weeds and the details, go survey lab equipment, collect all of the data, what has a 120 volt plug versus a 208 volt plug, what equipment needs specialty gases that could be building nitrogen compressed air vacuum, which are pretty typical, or it could be highly specialized argon, high purity nitrogen, et cetera. So you have to collect all of that data and then understand how to coordinate with the engineers because I would say half of the lab design to make a really functional space is what's happening above the ceiling. What is all of the MEP infrastructure? Do we have the right air change rates to support either heat loads from the equipment or to mitigate uh, any chemical hazards that might be kind of odors or in the air, as well as just making sure we have the right amount of power? Does the power need to be backed up in the event of a power loss? We don't want the scientists to lose any critical equipment or to damage any of the equipment. Um, So there's really a huge component of interface with the engineers. And I think that's something that I learned while at my time at Jacobs, where we had the in-house engineering staff, just a floor below the architecture department. And that foundation, I think, has been really important to being a successful and well-rounded lab planner and lab architect. It's one thing to call someone on the phone who works at a different company and ask them a question, but to have someone in-house, it feels more like a teammate than someone out of house and then you can ask them questions. I know there was a lot of innovation of, I have an idea, let me run downstairs and we'll talk about this and, oh, it doesn't work. It does work. And you're, you're motivated to work with them because you're all from the same company delivering a solution. Right. I, I've worked on a few labs as well. It's not my preferred specialty, but it, there is so much detail that goes into all of the casework, the casework types, tracking all of the equipment. As you said, that is a huge Excel file and Every piece of equipment too. I remember talking to you about things and you're like, oh yes, when I worked in the fume hood, I would, you know, do this, that, and the other. And I needed a sink nearby. And it was so helpful to have your experience because I've never used a fume hood. I've never used the microscopes or the spinners. But to have your experience of actually using those items, you understand kind of what it means to exist in that space, which I think is great. Also, too, the scientists, as you're saying, each person has such a different specialty. Because each scientist has such a different way of working, you're customizing things down to, I mean, the equipment is unique, but also are there drawers? Are there cabinets? Are there overhead cabinets? Outlets? Where do you need them? How do you pull that information from the scientists and organize it in a way that is efficient? Do you have any tips for that working through and and keeping decisions linear and building on each other rather than circling back around and doing a lot of design revisions. One of the critical first steps is just having visioning sessions with the scientists. Meeting with the scientists is one of the best parts about the design. It's so much fun learning about all the cool things they're doing and to know without having to do it myself and 
painstaking work involved uh-huh. with both success or disappointment in the lab, but to be able to still support their work without having to go through that grueling effort is is a lot of fun. But we need to understand what their goals, needs, and wants are right off the bat, because that will allow us to stay focused as we come up with questions through the design development process. We can always go back to those goals, needs, and wants. And then that also gives us a chance to really understand what they're doing, because everyone does work a little differently. And it's important to hear what's going well in their current labs, but also where do they feel like they're kind of working upstream, so to speak, in their current facility. They sometimes pose challenges to us about how can we modify the casework or how can we modify the design to allow them to do something easier or better. Um, And a lot of times it's optimizing flows, you know, less steps uh, is less wasted time. Sometimes it's just a really highly custom piece of equipment, maybe like a high combustion duct that's 30 feet tall and there's certain optical ports, but different heights that they have to be able to see in. And so we need lots of different platforms. It is certainly a lot of incoming information. I think the equipment list and the equipment survey is certainly one tool that's really important in helping to track the needs of the lab. I will say one huge perk uh, of being at Hera and at a consultancy that's dedicated to only doing labs is we've developed some tools to help make our job easier and, and better. Um, so we have a iPad-based, we call it Equips software. So it's helped to speed up that painstaking equipment survey process. We can get in and out of the labs faster and we can have better quality data to use back in the office. So we take a picture of every piece of equipment, you know, on site, record all of those utilities, and then Thanks to a click of a button, it generates these survey sheets with all of that data per piece of equipment, and it develops or outputs uh, an Excel matrix. And that's been a really useful tool to communicate with the end user, because when you're in a meeting and the end user is saying, oh, you know, that star piece of equipment, and I'm like, well, what, what does star mean with pulling up some of these photos, be able to quickly identify which, you know, make sure we're talking about the same piece of equipment, uh, and then it can help facilitate the rest of the conversation. Oh, that's great. Is Hera typically employed by the owner directly or do you work through architecture firms doing maybe like a larger building-wide renovation? Right. If it's an early master planning study, sometimes we're hired directly by the owners, but more commonly we would be a consultant to the architecture firm because all we do is laboratory design. We have all of the lab standards really set up Uh, Like our library is really robust when it comes to casework. But on the other hand, because we typically partner with prime architects, we don't have that same level of development on tagging walls, for example, or door hardware. So at least my personal preference, and one of the reasons I came to Hera is I don't have much interest in tagging walls anymore in my career. Mm -hmm. You know, I've spent a lot of time tagging walls and I've learned that I'm more excited about lab design. So I am very happy to partner with a prime and let them handle wall tagging. It's great too to have all of the laboratory equipment families because that's always, you know, you just make like a box and you're like, oh, here's the the spinner. It's a box and here's another box. So you probably have more detailed families, which just makes the lab design all the more real rather than having a placeholder that's of the same size as XYZ equipment. We have some. We still rely heavily on the equipment cube. Oh, But yes, yeah. you're correct. There there are some that we've taken the time to model a little bit more carefully because 3D visualization has 
become so much more easier to prepare and then useful to use and so well received by the end user that the industry is certainly moving in that direction. Do you see any other trends emerging in lab design, whether it's 3D visualization to help with the design process, or I don't know if black epoxy countertops maybe went out of style and now they're coming back in. Have you seen any trends emerging? I think the biggest one is automation. Lab space is really expensive and people's time is also really expensive. So if you're in a an existing facility with a fixed amount of square footage and you're looking for economical ways to maximize your output or increase your output for some equipment and some work processes in the lab, purchase kind of like a nice big box, self-contained platform. And, you know, that will be able to increase throughput uh, for certain functions, you know, exponentially. And so this automation equipment has slightly different needs. One of the biggest things is it's, since it's a huge big box, doesn't fit very nicely into our lab module. Uh, it's kind of oversized. And so we hear a lot from end users that they need to rip out fixed casework or move ca loose casework out of the way to make room for this equipment. And then these platforms often have unique or high power requirements because the whole platform is wired to sometimes just one plug and it's so it's a specialty high voltage power sometimes it needs purified water source or drain and, and sometimes specialty gases so it is a kind of a custom install you, you can't just buy it and and just plug it in and go it, it does require some facility planning ahead of bringing that new equipment online that's interesting and it's performing an action that was previously done by a human? Correct. And so you, you might have had eight pieces of equipment and, and needed three or four people to prep the samples and run the equipment, but now that work can be handled by this one platform. So it, it takes up more space for that one box, although you know maybe it's the same amount of space because the eight pieces of equipment were pretty spread out. So maybe, well, maybe that could be a wash, but then it would have less demand on people and, and, and their time as well. Wow, that's exciting. Have you seen any trends in terms of lead for lab spaces? Oftentimes, labs may be exempt from lead qualification just because if you need to perform a certain task, you need to do that regardless of whether the electricity is shut off after hours to conserve. So do labs typically qualify for lead or well certification? Certainly more and more projects these days, like more and more of the my projects are lead, I would say about maybe lead silver. It is certainly different building types. I do think labs, sustainable labs is more of a challenge. And just inherently, again, back to that safety perspective, labs have higher air change rates because if there are any chemicals evaporating into the air, we want to get that air out and bring in fresh air. And so not only is the air changes higher than an office, we also have what we call once through air or 100% exhausted air. So once the air is removed from that room or that space, it's exhausted out to the outside. It is not recirculated. And so there's very high energy demand. Labs, especially chemistry labs, will utilize chemical fume hoods for more hazardous chemicals or hazardous functions. That work will be done in the chemical fume hood to provide protection to the, to the lab user. And those chemical fume hoods also have kind of a face velocity that they need to maintain to create that kind of air barrier safety to protect the person from the chemicals they're handling inside the hood. Um, and so that 
is also a huge energy suck. And so I think that the industry and, and really more on the mechanical design and the fume hood design has done a really good job of looking at where and how we can have heat exchangers to recover the energy so that we're not just exhausting the energy out to the exterior, but we can exchange that and help reheat some of the incoming air. The chemical fume hoods are looking at high efficiency, low flow styles. So they're really fine tuning the design and the face of the fume hood and how it, it's moving the air to create that kind of air curtain safety boundary. Um, so, you know, fume hoods used to be kind of 110, 120 feet per minute at the face. And now we're seeing product on the market that can get dropped down to 60 feet per minute. That being said, it's very rare to see a client or an owner who's comfortable setting their fume hoods that low. So usually, even though they could operate and they're tested to that low velocity, they're usually operated closer to about 80 feet per minute. It's pretty standard now. And then there's just other technologies like on the fume hood, auto sash sensors and closers. So having worked in the chemistry lab, I did have facilities come to my lab and knock on my door once or twice or eight or nine times. Uh, asking me to close my sash on my chemical fume hood. Um, so I, you know, I was part of the problem as a lab user, but it's safer to operate the fume hood with the sash lowered or as low as it can be while you can safely still get your arms in there. And then when you're done working, it's kind of like turning off the lights when you leave the room, you need to shut the sash. And so they do offer some auto sash closure options just to ensure that those sashes are getting closed every night when everyone vacates the lab. So there's definitely advances, but you're right. There are a lot of functions in the lab that make it difficult to meet some of the lead intentions or lead credits. And, and I think this is just a reminder that sustainability is is really looking bigger than just any one rating system. You know, it's more about an intentionality and in, in how you approach design rather than check off enough credits and, and did it add up to get you to silver or gold. That's a great point. In terms of labs that you've worked on, do you have a favorite type of lab? And do you mind talking about maybe the different types of labs that you've worked on? Just some terms that are thrown around that maybe a typical listener wouldn't know about. Yeah, there's different ways of categorizing labs. So I'll start with chemistry labs are one of my favorites just because of my background. I just uh, having worked in the lab, I just feel like I understand it better because of that firsthand knowledge. Chemistry labs tend to be fume hood driven and there tends to be a ratio of people to fume hoods. So like in my the lab I worked in at Syracuse, uh, every person had their own fume hood. I mean, I had my name on it. This was Eva's fume hood. So if you know the head count of the lab group, you know, 16 people working in there, you get 16 fume hoods and fume hoods need to be spaced so far apart so that one's airflow doesn't impact the airflow of the next. So, so there's almost like a max density. So if you know how many fume hoods, you, you can only fit so many in so many square feet. And so you can kind of just start blocking it out and scaling it up based on the head count. So it's pretty, I don't know, mathematically driven lab typology. I also really love research and development. I just, I find it to be a really wide range. It could be research at a higher education institution that tends to be more people-driven. People just need a certain amount of space to do their work in the labs at a university or a campus setting. But then there's also kind of the private corporate commercial side companies like Big Pharma, I think of would be like Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson Johnson, Merck's, uh, AstraZeneca's. Some of their R&D spaces are more equipment-driven. And so in that case, you need to survey the equipment and then the equipment 
drives the design of the space. It's what the equipment needs. Can the equipment be in normal ambient conditions or is there is it sensitive to humidity or temperature swings? How much heat load is the equipment giving off? And so you really need to understand what type of lab you're dealing with and what the driver of that lab type is. So just to kind of contrast R&D with maybe clinical, clinical is all about throughput. You know, a hospital's clinical lab has so many patients and beds in the in the hospital, appointments and people coming in giving blood samples or giving urine samples. All of those get sent to the clinical lab and it's all about how quickly can you get the samples through accurately? And so that's a different driver of lab types. And so it's just amazing the wide range. And that's just why I think it keeps my interest over the years. And every project has something that's unique that I've never seen before because these researchers are really doing cutting edge stuff. So it's it's pretty cool. That's so exciting. Can we transition to career progression? You are the director of the Philadelphia office now, and you have a staff according to the website, a staff of seven. Uh, and then you also lead staffing, technical capabilities in the office, and then also working on mentoring and fostering expertise in the Philadelphia region. Can you talk a little bit about joining the company? Sure. I had mentioned earlier when I joined RMJM Hillier that I had a wonderful mentor named Laura Carlson. And unfortunately, RMJM decided once they acquired Hillier, realized having three offices so closely geographically nearby maybe was a little inefficient or unnecessary. So uh, ultimately, uh, in my time there, they closed the Philadelphia office. And so uh, living in Philadelphia, I did commute to Princeton for a while, but you know, I was interested in finding a local job that I could take the subway to uh, more easily. So Laura Carlson recommended Hera. And so I did interview there uh, back in 2010. And at the time, I, I think my intern level skill set didn't align with the firm's needs. I interviewed with Barbara Spitz and she just, I really appreciated some of her just comments. And I felt like I was, I was being mentored during that interview. Like on one hand, it was pretty clear that, you know, this wasn't going to generate a job offer at the end of this interview, but she very much gave me kind of that advice about getting that strong architectural foundation before completely diving in to specialize in labs. So I really appreciated that. Hera was then therefore on my radar for many, many years. I bumped into a friend at someone's birthday party and turned out she was working at Hera. And so we got reconnected and uh, I was able at that point to come in. So at that point, I had about maybe nine years of experience. And really the time at Jacobs was really helpful, not only learning about architecture, but about all of the MEP coordination. And so I came in, Hera calls it a a lab planner level. Okay. And so kind of my day-to-day job, I got to go to client meetings, hear firsthand what's happening in the labs and what the users needed. And then I was able to come back to the office and at this point using Revit, got to translate everything I heard and put it onto paper and and, and work out some of the blocking and, and stacking adjacencies. And then as it moved into construction documents, you know, doing all of the casework elevations and drawings and details and specifications and then uh, seeing it through CA. I very much consider myself a doer. So I liked doing it all. And I liked that the projects were at a scale that I could do a lot of it 
But I also, for some of the bigger projects, you know, I still like, and I've always gravitated towards larger schools and larger firms. So I, I still liked the capability at Hera to have a team. So on some of the larger projects, you know, there'd be like two or three of us focusing primarily on the, on the lab part. And then this idea of, even though it's a smaller firm, this idea of team on a project, we have the prime and we have the engineers. And so even though I'm at a small firm, I still have a really large team. At Jacobs, projects were so large, I usually worked on one project. But at Hera, because we only touch the lab scope of each project, we tend to be on three, four, maybe even five projects at a time, depending on how busy the projects are and what point of design phase they're in. And so you have your core group at Hera, but your teams are bigger than Hera. They, they include some of the other firms on the design team. So that's really nice to have that, that mix. That's great. I guess you're doing some of the staffing at Hera too. When you look for candidates, what type of skills are you looking for? Even if maybe they still need to complete those two years of working at Hera before they're proficient. Right. So there's certainly the candidates that come in with lab knowledge. The expectations for them are very different than candidates coming in without the lab knowledge. For people without the lab background, we're looking for people who are excited about labs, you know, have an interest who are willing to learn. One of the skills that's really highly valued is just the self-initiative. Every project is going to have something unique, something that we've never seen before. And so we do need people who are capable of reaching out to vendors and learning more about the equipment and taking that initiative. And that's really one of those skills that's really hard to teach people. And so anytime we find someone that has that just innately part of who they are or just comfortable, willing to pick up the phone and, and do that research is really valuable. Yeah, that's that's a great skill to have and really can be applied to any industry, but architecture especially. Architecture is known for long hours, lower pay compared to some other industries. Is there any benefit to going to the consultant side of things as compared to an architecture firm? The biggest difference, I think, is in the structure of the team. So the architect is going to sign a contract with the owner, and the architect is saying, big picture, we're going to deliver, we, myself, with all of my consultants, are going to deliver you a full project. And then the architect goes and solicits proposals from all of their consultants. So Hera will write very specifically, will attend X number of meetings, will prepare these specs of these spec sections, and will do these drawings to support that. And so the architect collects all of those proposals. And if, if there's any gaps, it usually falls on the architect to fill it in. And so one advantage to being a consultant is that we work towards that very prescribed proposal. And then the architects are kind of left or need to make sure that all of their consultants, when they pull all the pieces together, create a whole package. And so it does kind of take the pressure off a bit being the consultant rather than being in that prime architect role. Yeah, it sounds like because you can set healthy boundaries and then work towards those rather than, I don't know, bending over backwards for every issue that comes up that most may be unforeseen. That being said, though, I do think all of us at Hera, I mean, we take a lot of pride and we have a lot of interest in our projects. And so we're still providing high quality work and we want to see our projects succeed. So if and where able, you know, we are a partner with the Prime. We have, I think, some really good relationships with architecture firms and, and they do come back to us uh, regularly. And so 
I think some of our best working relationships with the primes are where they really just view us as an extension of their office. You know, some of the firms, you really feel like they're your colleagues. The fact that my signature line says Hera and theirs says their architecture firm's name almost doesn't matter. We, you know, we're very much putting together a cohesive deliverable. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. It's not you're doing the bare minimum and then saying we're done. The consultancy allows you to protect yourselves just in terms of billing and hours and managing the company because you set a fee and then you work to that fee and then it's, oh, we're doing more work. Well, then, you know, additional services kick in, this, that or the other. Right. Some healthy boundaries. Yes. Financially, a lot of architecture firms burn through their fees because design runs long or something unexpected comes up. But I think that the the way that a consultancy is structured really protects the workers and the employees and keeps a company healthy. You have a family and I was wondering if you've ever had any challenges in your career balancing family and professional life. So yes, <laughs> that's the easy answer. I do think I am a bit of a workaholic. You know, I have a really hard time when I, I just, I know I have things on my to-do list. I, I just, I need to get them done. And I really value and get a lot of fulfillment out of doing, you know, a high quality job. That tendency does not pair well with good work-life balance. But I will say when I had my daughter and became a mom, it just meant that there are times, unfortunately, pick up at the end of a work day is very unforgiving. You know, the daycare that we were at, and, and this is kind of common practice amongst daycares and aftercares, they have their own families that their staff want to get home to. So six o'clock hits and they start charging, I think it was like a dollar a minute. If you had three late pickups after six o'clock, they could ask you to leave the facility because they had a wait list that was a mile long that they could fill your spot and they could fill it with someone who respects their time and their schedule. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of times now since becoming a mom where I feel like Cinderella, the clock strikes 5.15 and I better be just walking away from my computer so that I can go make childcare pickup. And so I have emails that get left half written, you know, all the things that didn't quite get done that day, I just have to stop and walk away. And so then I, especially during COVID, I started working kind of what I called the parent hours, where once the kid goes to bed, you log back in and you kind of work this new evening shift from nine to midnight, where you're finishing all those emails and trying to wrap everything up that didn't get done during the day. And pre-kid, I would just work till seven and then go home. But now I kind of do the day shift and then this evening shift. Do you think it's impacted your career at all? The way people see you as a woman performing your job during those set like nine to five hours or has your company been, the companies you've worked with during that time been flexible to recognize that Eva's going to do a great job no matter what time she does it. And they've been flexible to allow that extra shift in the evening. Well, I think, and again, especially with COVID, even remote work now, it just has made it easier to work that evening shift, maybe to my own detriment. Because since it's easier to work it now, I'll do it more. So I'm probably putting in more evening hours. I've been very lucky that while being a mom, first at Jacobs and now at Hera, I've been at two firms that I've been very supportive. And I, I just remember at Jacobs having a talk with the head of architecture while I was getting ready to go out on maternity leave and them saying, like, having a kid doesn't need to change anything. You can still be thriving, productive architect here at the firm. This doesn't have to change anything. That being said, I really feel like when I return to the office after maternity leave, 
I did choose to work a three-day week. I put a lot of pressure on myself, for better or worse, to breastfeed exclusively and juggling. I did better on days when I was at home because I could breastfeed, whereas at work I had to pump. And there is this balance of, am I pumping enough to offset the days that I was working? And that was very stressful. And so after that first year back where I was working part-time, I really didn't feel like I had progressed. And of course, I had this naive vision that, oh, nothing's going to change. You know, I'm just going to pop out a kid and come back to work and back to same old, same old. And all of a sudden now I'm like running out the door at 515 and not finishing my work like I was able to before. And again, I think it was a lot of self-imposed stress and pressure what my new normal of work output or how I worked needed to change. And so that was really eye-opening for me coming back from having a kid. You know, looking back now, my daughter is eight. I feel like I'm progressing in my career just fine. Even if I had that one or two years of part-time work, I don't think it held me back. But in the moment of that one or two years of part-time, I really felt like I was going a lot slower. And so I do worry, having gone through all that, I'm very aware now of this, the glass ceiling and women in the workplace. And I get it. I only had one kid. What if I had had two or three? And I had multiple of these part-time years where I was dealing with a newborn or an infant. I could see that starting to potentially holding them back. So it's hard. I'm seeing that women graduate at equal rates to men in architecture schools now. But if we look at women's presence in leadership positions in architecture firms, Mm -hmm. we're still a very significant minority. Because I think there's this time in a career where you have to make that decision. And some people don't have kids and encounter other bumps along the way. But for those women who do decide to have kids, it really does change things. Do you have any advice for someone who is considering having a kid? How should they prepare to accept, like, I'm not going to be able to perform how I used to? That's a great question. I think for me, I had two wonderful female lab planners who were, in my opinion, clearly kind of senior, pretty high up in the firm. But you're right. The majority of the other senior level people were all male. So I have two mentors in each independently telling me about kind of this concern. And from where I was sitting, having 50-50 classes through school and looking around at Jacobs and everything, everyone that was my age, it still felt 50-50. But that's because mm-hmm. none of us were married and having kids yet. And then there was certainly that group of people in the same point in their lives at Jacobs. We all kind of got married together and then we all started getting pregnant together. And I just didn't listen and I didn't heed these women who were mentors. And, and you know, this is a problem in the industry. And, and I think that's why after I had a kid, women in the workplace became really an interest of mine and paid a lot more attention to it. And I don't quite know how to address it. And I think part of it is I grew up in a household, at least when I was born, both my parents worked, although my mom ultimately, when I was about in first grade, became mostly a stay-at-home mom. And just the dynamic of the role at home and finding relationships and nurturing our next generation and nurturing our kids to really promote more of like a 50-50 balance, trying to break that societal norm of men's work and women's work and what that looks like. It's, It's people's work. Anyone can do it because I think if you have really equalized home life and family structure, that that will help share the 
child care load and the house load to allow anyone to have a strong shot at a good and meaningful career. When you've encountered economic downturns and then you have to share childcare responsibilities. This is a conversation we had years ago, so you probably won't remember it, but you're married to an architect and then some of your colleagues are married to non-architects. Have you seen a difference in the way that if there's an economic downturn, if architecture in general is impacted, how that affects your family and your ability to share childcare responsibilities? Is that different for how someone who perhaps has architecture and then like a non-impacted sector so somehow, even though both my husband and I are both architects and our greatest fear, of course, is a, a recession because then we, quite frankly, could both lose our jobs. Luckily, that hasn't happened yet. We've both had potentially periods where things were rocky at my job or his job, but we haven't had any periods where it's aligned and not since my daughter was born in 2014. So we've been doing pretty good for the last eight years with the economy. I think for us... One of the biggest changes and improvements was when my daughter was first born, my husband was working out in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And so he had a pretty gruesome commute both ways and he wasn't available to do a lot of the drop-offs and pickups. And so that was part of why he eventually looked for a new job in, in Center City and his move to a local firm, significant improvement on equalizing the childcare responsibilities. And so now every week on Sunday night, we sit down and we go over who has what calls and what meetings when. And for the most part, it works out. And one of us does drop off each day. One of us does pick up. I do tend to travel more. Uh, being a consultant, our project work is all over the country. So there are weeks where he has to shoulder more of the responsibility. But then, of course, he gets some major deadlines where he needs to put in some late hours and I'll pick up those times. So it's, it's worked out a lot better. Both of our job locations and schedules to allow both of us to be able to do both drop off and pick up has really helped to equalize that load. That's excellent. It's very important to balance it. And I think you're very organized, so it doesn't surprise me that you have a, a Sunday sit down and you go through the whole schedule for the week. I wanted to just thank you so much for hopping on the call. And it was so great to reconnect because it's been years, I think, since we've chatted. And it's so nice to see how your career has progressed and developed. And I was there when you were pregnant and even before that. And now you have an eight-year-old daughter, which is outrageous and time flies so quickly. And I can't believe essentially like her whole life I've been working in architecture firms. So thank you so much for sharing. And I don't know if you wanted to leave us with a closing statement or anything like that, <laughs> but I'll open it up for that. I think the most important thing about work, and I think it's very true for the architecture profession, is, is you do have to love what you do mm -hmm. because whether it is architecture or something else, there's a lot of, I think, thankless parts of jobs. So you really need to find the right balance and the right topics of interest to make work rewarding for you. And, and that would look, I think, different for every person. Thank you so much, Eva. Well, it was a pleasure. I talked all about myself. I didn't get to hear much about you, but... That's the point. That's the <laughs> I look point. <laughs> forward to listening to your podcast. It's very exciting to see you take on this effort. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Architect Debt. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your network, leave us a five-star rating and review, and follow us on social media reach out to the podcast directly at architectet.com. 
That's architectette.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. See you then.